Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories surrounding the day that lives in infamy, December 7th. First, he tells the story of the first shots fired and the first ship sunk in the Pacific War. Then, he tells the story of what happened afterward on December 8th. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, the anniversary of the Japanese attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet that President Franklin Roosevelt called a date which will live in infamy. Among the many stories of heroism on this day is one of a small, outdated vessel crewed by naval reservists that played a unique role in the Second World War and the attack on Pearl Harbor. This scrappy vessel demonstrated the spirit of the U.S. Navy and the determination of the nation through two wars and some of the hardest fighting in the history of the Navy. The history of the USS Ward deserves to be remembered. James Harmon Ward had an extraordinary career in the Navy. Appointed a midshipman in 1823, he served aboard Old Ironsides, the USS Constitution in the Atlantic Squadron. Later he served in the blockade of Africa, an operation that cooperated with the British Royal Navy to intercept and stop the West African slave trade. And then in the West Indies, fighting pirates. Because doesn't every great story involve pirates? A naval scholar, Ward taught courses for midshipmen and authored textbooks on naval theory and practice. When in 1845, Secretary of the Navy George Bancroft formed a naval school on the grounds of the former U.S. Army Fort Severn in Annapolis, Maryland, James Harmon Ward was one of the first five founders and the first commandant of midshipmen of what would eventually be called the U.S. Naval Academy. At the advent of the U.S. Civil War, he was given command of the Potomac Squadron. There, in the June 1861 Battle of Matthias Point, he was leading from the front, having brought his flagship, the steamer USS Thomas Freeborn, close to shore to protect a retreating shore party. While sighting the ship's bow gun, Commander Ward was killed by sniper fire. He was the first U.S. naval officer killed fighting in the Civil War, and his name would carry on in the U.S. Navy. The development of the self-propelled torpedo in the 1860s led to a new vessel for naval service, the Torpedo Boat. These small, cheap, and fast boats could run out and engage large ships with torpedoes and then retreat. The first successful use of such a boat to sink an armored ship with a self-propelled torpedo occurred during the Chilean Civil War of 1891, when the torpedo gunboat Almirante Lynch sank the armored frigate Blanco Encalada in the Battle of Caldera Bay. The development of the torpedo boat then gave rise to another class of vessel, the torpedo boat destroyer, whose purpose was to screen larger warships from attacks by torpedo boats and be able to fire torpedoes themselves. The first boat of this type built for the United States was the USS Bainbridge, commissioned in 1903. U.S. Navy destroyer designs evolved quickly. By 1916, when it was increasingly clear that the U.S. may be drawn into the First World War and the Navy was being greatly expanded, the Naval Appropriations Act called for the construction of 50 Wicks-class destroyers, vessels with a displacement of 1,154 tons, nearly three times the size of the 420-ton Bainbridge commissioned just 13 years earlier. The submarine threat that became apparent during the Great War gave greater impetus to produce destroyers, and eventually 267 of the Wicks-class and the similar Clemson-class destroyers were built. One of those was the USS Ward, 
Designed for high speed and mass production, Wix class destroyers were larger than previous US designs, largely because of the requirement that they be able to make 35 knots, fast enough to keep up with the Lexington and Omaha class cruisers. The larger design used a single deck that was continuous from stem to stern, differentiating it from previous US destroyer designs that had a raised forecastle. Thus, the Wix and the closely related Caldwell and Clemson class destroyers were commonly called the flush deck destroyers. They had two boilers and thus four stacks. Armament was four 4 inch 50 caliber guns, 12 21 inch torpedo tubes, a 3 inch 23 caliber anti aircraft gun, and depth charges. Built at the Mare Island Naval Shipyard near Vallejo, California, the construction of the USS Ward is a testament to the extent of the US mobilization during the First World War. The Navy was emphasizing destroyer production, even delaying the production of cruisers to facilitate more destroyers being built. Under this pressure, the ship's keel for USS Ward was laid May 15, 1918, and she was launched June 1st, marking a US record for the production of a destroyer of only 17 days. Ward was commissioned into service on July 24th, one of only a handful of Wix-class vessels completed in time to serve during the Great War, and was the flagship of De Destroyer Division 18, but saw no combat. In May of 1919, Ward was part of a famous first, participating in a chain of Navy ships that provided navigational aid and lifeguard station for a U.S. Navy Curtis flying boat, which became the first aircraft of any kind to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, or any of the other oceans for that matter. In 1921, with most of her sister ships, Ward was decommissioned and placed in reserve in San Diego. But in January 1941, with war on the horizon, Ward was recommissioned, manned by reservists of the Minnesota Naval Reserve, which had been called to active duty during the same month. Many of the recommissioned ships were sent to the Atlantic to protect convoys, but Ward was sent to Hawaii, arriving in March. She was assigned, along with three other World War I-era destroyers, to patrol the harbor entrance to Pearl Harbor, where the U.S. Pacific Fleet had been moved. 1941 was a tense year. The U.S. and Japan were at odds over Japanese actions in China and Indochina. The U.S. froze Japanese assets on July 26, 1941, and on August 1st established an embargo on oil and gasoline exports to Japan. While negotiations were ongoing, tensions were high, and in November the Coastal Patrol was given orders to depth charge suspicious submarine contacts, in essence, permission to shoot, as submarines that entered territorial waters while submerged were not protected by innocent passage protections. On December 5th, Ward got a new commander, Lieutenant William Outerbridge, a 1927 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Ward was his first command, having been executive officer aboard the destroyer USS Cummings. Two days later, Ward was on her routine patrol outside Pearl Harbor around 4 a.m. when she received visual signals via signal light from the Coast Guard manned coastal minesweeper USS Condor. The Condor had a tentative sighting of a periscope. Ward called to general quarters and conducted a search using sonar for the next hour, but turned up no contacts. At 6.40, the general store's issue ship Antares, waiting outside the harbor for a favorable tide, sent another signal about a suspicious object off her stern. Ward's lookout saw, behind the Antares, a small wake, the sign of a periscope, the risk for which they had been warned in November. At first the watch commander thought it might be a buoy, but decided probably it was a conning tower of a submarine, although the U.S. didn't have anything that looked like that in its navy. The officer on the bridge, Lieutenant Gepner, sent, sent for Captain Outerbridge, who was sleeping in the nearby ready cabin. Outerbridge came to the bridge still wearing his pajamas. By his observation, it looked to be a submarine, apparently intent on following the Antares into Pearl Harbor. Following the order that had been issued in November, Outerbridge ordered an attack, charging the contact. The first shot came from the number one four-inch gun mount, but went long. 
Then number three gun came to bear, firing a second round. The submarine was so close that the shot was below the gun's targeting reticle. The gunner had to fire by sight alone. The shot seemed to hit the submarine's conning tower, but the crew couldn't be sure. Word then dropped four depth charges. Outerbridge sent a message to the 14th Naval District Headquarters. He wanted to be clear because he did not want them to mistake the attack as being on just an unidentified sonar contact. We have attacked, fired upon, and dropped depth charges upon submarine operating in defensive sea area, he reported. The message should have been a warning that an enemy attack was imminent, but the message took time to work its way through channels, and command then required confirmation. Another destroyer was sent to help search for contacts, but the Navy did not grasp the significance of the event. Word saw other sonar contacts and fired more depth charges, but saw no more submarines. They were still outside the harbor when the air attack began. The crew at first thought the explosions they were hearing were from highway work. The submarine the Ward had seen was a Japanese Type A midget submarine, one of five that had been launched from larger submarines some 10 miles from Pearl Harbor on December 6th. The Type A was about 75 feet long, carried two 450mm torpedoes, and had a range of about 100 nautical miles. The question of what the Ward saw and whether it scored a hit was not definitively answered until August of 2002, when researchers from the University of Hawaii finally discovered the wreckage of the submarine, with a clean hole through the conning tower, right where Outerbridge had said the number three gun had hit. Thus, the first shot between the United States and Japan in the Pacific War was fired by the USS Ward, and in the second shot of that war, the Ward had struck home, sunk the Japanese submarine. The first casualties and first vessel loss in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor were Japanese rather than American. USS Ward continued her duties outside Pearl Harbor through the end of the year, but in 1942 was sent to California to be one of 17 Wix-class vessels to be refitted as high-speed transports. High-speed transports were a new concept. These converted destroyers were designed to be able to disembark troops under fire. Their armament was sufficient to defend themselves from small naval ships and to provide fire support, while they were fast enough to avoid larger ships. Their primary role was to deliver small units, such as marine raiders or army rangers. The flush deck destroyers were a good fit for the role, as removing the second boiler, and consequently two of the four stacks, allowed accommodation for 200 troops, a company-sized unit, while reducing the top speed to 25 knots. The torpedo tubes were removed, allowing room to mount four large landing craft. In addition, Ward's older 4-inch 50-caliber guns were replaced with newer 3-inch 50-caliber anti-aircraft guns. Along with depth charges, the high-speed transport was effective both as an anti-aircraft screen and an anti-submarine role. High-speed transports were given the designation APD, AP meaning transport, and D meaning destroyer. The former USS Ward was redesignated APD-16 and was ready for service in February 1943. The work of the fast transports was arduous, combining the roles of transports and destroyers. APD-16 participated in a dizzying array of operations in the Solomon Islands and the invasion of New Guinea. In December 1944, the ship was engaged in landing operations supporting the invasion of the island of Leyte, the beginning of the operation to recapture the Philippines. On a patrol assignment, the APD-16 and the destroyer USS Mahan came under air attack by a group of Japanese G-4M Betty bombers with escort fighters. Three broke off to attack the high-speed transport. Her blazing gun splashed two. The third was hit, but crashed into APD-16 amidships, hitting so hard that one of the plane's two engines continued on through the ship, exiting at the waterline on the starboard side. The bomber exploded, starting uncontrollable fires. The ship came to a stop, her crew attempting to fight the fires, but the hoses had lost pressure.
They received assistance from the destroyer USS O'Brien, but as the fires burned towards the fuel and ready ammunition storage, the ship's commander, Lieutenant Raymond Forrest Farwell Jr., had to give the order to abandon ship. Miraculously, only one member of the crew had been injured, and the crew was safely evacuated to other ships. As the fires were beyond control, USS O'Brien was ordered to sink the burning transport with gunfire. In a stunning coincidence, the former USS Ward went under at 11.30 a.m. on December 7th, three years to the day after she fired the first shot of the war in the Pacific. The commander of the USS O'Brien ordered to sink the gallant ship was William Outerbridge, who had commanded her that day outside Pearl Harbor. USS Ward earned one battle star as a destroyer and eight battle stars as a high-speed transport. Her distinguished service and dogged determination well represented the Navy in the Pacific Campaign. Ward's number three, four-inch, 50-caliber gun that fired the second shot and sunk the first enemy vessel of the Pacific War was removed when the ship went in for refit in 1942. In 1958, that gun was installed as a memorial out front the Minnesota State Capitol in St. Paul. The wreckage of the former USS Ward was discovered by the research vessel R.V. Petrel in December 2017. William Outerbridge continued to serve with the Navy until 1957, when he retired as a rear admiral. He passed away in 1986 at the age of 80. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. Uh, we would like to welcome Betty Jo, my grandmother and mother of the History Guy, back to the podcast. And we would also like to uh, dedicate this podcast to the memory of the many people who fought and died at Pearl Harbor. You know, one of the things that struck me about this episode is is that this is about a, a small ship and that each and every one of these ships has a name and is named for somebody important. and Or at least someone who did something and deserves to be remembered. And, I, you know, I think about how many of those little destroyers there were uh, hundreds of oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Flesh Deckers, hundreds, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and they're all uh, named after someone that was important to the Navy. That's true. Yeah, and, it's, and you think about them, because they're, I mean, they're not that big. They're like a thousand-ton displacement or whatever. I mean, it's, I think a destroyer today is like 8,000. I mean, so they're they're really fairly small. They're smaller than frigates today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But, I mean, they did such service, those Flesh Deckers. Uh, those are what we gave in uh, to the to the UK as part of Lindley's and you know the complaint was that they're kind of old and dated and they can't really chase things that are like World War One level and it's amazing the service that they continued to show and the ward is a great example of that I mean it's an absolutely stunning example of that with you know what it did in the time that it did including firing the first shot of the, the of the Pacific War you know the first real war shot that the US fired in the Second World War was was the ward yeah which is which is amazing and it's not something i think you think about um it's no. it is another good example of you know this these ideas about how i think that uh, well some people go to conspiracy but how we missed signs is it sure feels like you know we we should have been able to uh, we, yeah. we should have been more well, unaware. I mean, the, the message had to make it all the way up through. Yeah. It had to be verified. Had to see, but the thing is, no one was really clear. I mean, this is, this is the Minnesota uh, uh, Navy Reserve, right? I mean, there's no oceans in Minnesota. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I think anybody was sure what they were shooting at. And I mean, because, I mean, they weren't even terribly sure. I mean, Outerbridge was very clear in his in his message that this wasn't us just shooting at a random, you know, uh, sonar ping, because they did that a lot. He says, you know, we saw something, we shot it. But, I mean, no one was actually sure that what the ward had reported was what the what had actually happened in until they found the submarine in 2002. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so I mean, but it is, it is in terms of all of the warnings that they have for Pearl Harbor, we saw an unidentified submarine that was seeking to enter the harbor would seem to be an indication that something bad is going on. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, yeah. There's, a, there's been a lot of talk about that. I mean, that's, you know, whether, whether who knew what or whether we responded to how many, uh, yeah, how, how many was missed messages. I'm, yeah. I mean, certainly there's always been this argument that FDR knew it was coming and they didn't tell anyone because he wanted the surprise attack in order to bring the nation to war. Yeah, that's been researched quite a lot. And I, I'll, I'll just have to say from my own research on the subject, I just don't think history supports it. I think that there's there's too much evidence uh, uh, saying, you know, uh, never never ascribe to a conspiracy what could be ascribed to incompetency. And I think that's really what it comes down to. A lot of, you know, a lot of messaging that was sent to the, you know, to uh, 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 General Short and, and, and Admiral Kimmel uh, was was convoluted. And, and, uh, and they were both convinced that the Japanese would never attack. You know the whole Pacific fleet there. Pearl yeah. Harbor was just too strong; you wouldn't take it on. Uh, and so, I, but uh, uh, you know, when they you know mistook the radar signals as being maybe B-17s that were coming in, all that stuff that they talked about, there's probably nothing more you know direct than we have seen and engaged an <laughs> enemy vessel outside of Pearl Harbor uh, that was missed. Uh, but yeah. I mean, you know, it, I, I imagine how many messages that Sync Pack gets you know, at, the, yeah. at that sort of time. And what had to come up through and get what the meaning of that was. So it well, is it is a tragedy because at least, you know, had they appreciated that, then at least, you know, we could have been more prepared. We could have, you know, had, had you know, the planes in the air or dispersed or I mean, all that even with an hour's warning, you could have you could have made a difference in terms of the amount of lives lost. Yeah. At, but just at think Harvard. about those guys. They're sitting on that boat and they think it's a periscope, for God's sake. Now, think mm-hmm. about what that must have been like. On, on a little submarine that size. Uh, yeah. uh, and one that size and so forth. And the fact that they were smart enough to do that. Yeah. But it's so easy to look back and say this fits this and this fits this. It's we true. do that every day, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, um, yeah, that's uh, all. That's we, all. We have the yeah. facts. We know. We pretty much we know what happened there. Yeah, yeah. You always you always say there were warnings, and maybe you know, but but whether you're gonna, I mean, there's a lot of things that you get warnings, and it doesn't actually happen. But yeah, I mean, it's so much kudos to them because you get this order like in late November that says if you see a submarine, you can shoot it. You're, you're not expecting that that's actually going to happen. No. <laughs> and so they're, I mean, they're looking at this thing, and they're, I mean, they're standing there looking at there with binoculars saying, I, you know, I don't know. I don't think anything we recognize and that they decide to shoot. But also, darn, the shooting. I mean, it was below the targeting reticle. The guy just, the guy just kind of hip shot I, that little submarine. And he and, hit and it. Plugged it right through the conning tower. Those are not large at all. No, it was it was tower. a good shot, and of course, you know, we couldn't, we we weren't able to confirm that he actually had hit anything for I mean, yeah, decades until, after yeah, the war, for, but... for decades until the until the twenty first century. But you know, you have to, uh, uh, you know, it's just such a shock. I mean, I don't think anybody really thinks about that. The, the very first casualty of the Pacific War and the first vessel sunk was not one of the U.S. vessels in Pearl Harbor, but it was a Japanese vessel outside of Pearl Harbor. The first casualties of the of the U.S. entering the war. Uh, you know, were on the Japanese side, not the American side, yeah. uh, and yet still uh, they were able to carry out a counter or a surprise attack that we that we weren't warned for. That's well, uh, and you know, it had to be quite a surprise to the crew of that submarine. For I mean, for <laughs> yeah, that, a moment. I, I mean, for not very long. But... <laughs> that was that was probably a bit unsettling. That you think you're being all hidden yes. and secret, and uh, and yeah, it just get plugged it right before yeah. before I mean, anything happens. It's just such a good story. I mean, those were. Uh, it's just amazing. It, uh, I mean, it just says how good those sailors were at their job. The, you know, yeah. the Minnesota Naval National Guard, and the, but they were, you know, they were patrolling, and they knew that was important. They knew what they were doing was important. They're in this, uh, you know, old. I mean, you know, we would have considered old, outdated destroyer, 
uh, and uh, they understood the situation and they reacted absolutely appropriately. And, and you know, they hit. It took them well, two shots, I guess. They're apparently, you know, one of very few people in the situation who, who did respond. Yeah. <laughs> in, we, talk, we talk so much about the few pilots who got in the air and yeah. et cetera, or, or uh, you know, the few people got to their machine guns very quickly. Uh, you know, here, this is, this is a great example of that. I mean, you know, people had every reason to be complacent in the question whether they were looking at a submarine. Uh, yeah, and they and they did their job, and so it's there's some real there's some interesting heroism there because yeah. uh, because you know they were kind of put out there as old submarines patrolling the outside. I think I don't think that you know anybody was really taking them all that seriously, and and you know son of a gun had every reason to. But also, I mean, I, I've forgotten all that's in this episode. We rewatched it today. I mean, you know, talking about the development of destroyers and yeah. talking about the development of U.S. destroyers and then the flush destroyers. But it goes on to such a good story too, where we took these. Uh, really kind of outdated destroyers and we turn them into these fast transports uh, and it's something you know compared to a landing ship uh, they're much better armed uh, and so you could you took out the second boiler you had enough room to put a whole company of troops in there you took out the torpedoes which they were unlikely to use anyway and then you put in uh, 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 landing vessels uh, and these things could come in and you know defend a, a landing party and land a landing party and go faster than a landing ship and you know, still be able to defend themselves and then we put them out on the on the on the anti-aircraft pickets, which was a very very dangerous place to be, which you know eventually we find out with the ward, uh, and so it really shows how how great. I mean, for for uh, you know this aged vessel, uh, you know built for another war. I mean, how much service they saw and how much you know. And that says a lot about all that we did in terms of resources in the Second yeah. World War. You know, it wasn't all about the new vessels. It was you know some of these saw just extraordinary service. We've done some episodes on these. You know these these old ships that just uh, you know, they distinguish themselves. I think yeah. Ward is one of those. Well, in an interesting yeah, way, named after the first commandant of of cadets at the Naval Academy. Yeah, and it's uh, that. I mean, his story was interesting too to talk about this guy who mm-hmm. who uh, who I think otherwise you know was totally forgotten. I mean, who who knows who? Yeah, who, who, he was. who knew it? We always. I mean, I like to give some background, and sometimes people get a little tired of that, and yeah. they don't want that, and they want to get right to the story. And a lot of times, we've got so much story to tell with the amount of time that we have that we really can't. So, you know, we can't talk about what is the namesake of the ship or something like that. But I'd like to. I think it's important that we talk about the namesake of the ship, and and you know, because that that's what ties all that naval history together. Yeah. Well, and like like I said at the beginning, you know, all these ships had these names. I mean, those were all yeah. people who who you know they they were worthy of having a ship named after them, and they, they did were, something. Yeah. And it's and you know we just that just list off a bunch of destroyers or something like that, and in, uh, in this battle or that battle, and you don't have any idea what who they're named after. They are, yeah. You can see that when you were looking at the uh, at the map that shows all the uh, all the ships that were involved in the uh, the transatlantic crossing of the of the of the the Curtis flying boats mm-hmm. uh, and you know, how many, how many ships we had at sea. Uh, and you know, this, this summer, uh, uh, this last summer, I, I had the honor of being invited out to, uh, to the commissioning of a coast guard cutter. Uh, and these, these, I think there's 57 of these uh, classic cutter now. Uh, and they're all named after distinguished uh, uh, coast guard enlisted personnel. I mean, there's, there's, there's sense in how we name them. And you know, that you've had, you know, 57 of those where the name was important enough to talk about its history. Yeah. And I was invited out there because, uh, you know, because the, the person, Maurice Jester, had been part of one of my episodes. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, these, the, 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 there's so much history tied into the Navy. Uh, and that's, that's, I mean, the USS Ward served so bravely, and I think it served, you know, and something that did their namesake brave. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the officer who, who died because he could have been sitting in the back, and instead he was in the front sight, literally sighting the gun when he got shot by a sniper. Yeah. I was uh, in the airport yesterday visiting with a uh, a man who was who came out. He had fought, he was in the... Uh, um, in the Vietnam War, uh, was wearing his Navy hat and was on his way to fly, flying to Illinois. And he says that he was on the last ship that went through the Suez Canal near, during the six, the six day war. 
Huh. And they actually were, they went through, and the, and the ship behind them was the one that was bombed and the one that, that actually blocked the channel. So they sunk, the, one, the ship behind them was when they sunk to block the, uh, 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 <laughs> to block so, the canal. <laughs> that blocked the canal. And so he had stories to tell. Good but heavens. here is this, this very, you know, nice, nice looking older man in his Navy hat. So proudly and and uh, and telling me that story, which I thought was for, neat for and, history, you know, and he and he could have been one that we would name a ship after. It's a mar. Yeah. It's it's really really part of our life and part of what we need to honor. Mm-hmm. And a number of the people that we talk about, the heroes that we talk about, end up having ships you know, named after them and things. I mean, there's, there's ways that we honor uh, these these you know people who served who made a difference. The story of the war, though, too. I mean, just you know that. You could not write this. It's one of these true strings of fiction that it, that, it, that it would sink three years later on December seventh. You know, it's and sank by the first shot. <laughs> and sank by Outer Bridge's ship. Yeah, the guy, the captain did at Crazy. Pearl Harbor was the one who had to sink the ship later when it was when it was on fire. And, uh, and that also shows you know the the danger those kamikazes. I mean, yeah. you know, three three planes attacked. They shot down two of them. The third one hit so hard that it went all the way through. Parts of it came out the other yeah. side of the ship. Uh, and they and they lost her. They lost the war. And, well, uh, uh, you know, we lost some large ships to uh, to kamikazes, yeah, but to those kamikazes, those smaller yeah. ships were, I mean, in a lot of ways, in they more were, danger. They were really sacrificial lands yeah. out there. That, you know, they were do- doing that to expand the radar picket so that you could yeah. see the planes coming farther out. But I mean, they were very vulnerable. There's a reason that they called the destroyers ten can navy because they they simply you know didn't have a lot of armor. They were they yeah. were built to be a small ship who could keep up with the speed of the large ships, and that didn't leave you a lot of room to you know protect you. Your deck from it so uh and i mean though you know even in that story only one one sailor injured i mean that's, that's amazing too. yeah that's yeah. i mean many more she people was a total loss and everybody got off yeah it's incredible and, and you know they've they've uh, they've found the the uh, ship now right that uh, the yeah, RV Petrol did discover. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. We discover more and more of these ships that have been lost, and uh, yeah. it's, we've we've done a lot of work recently. You know, in the last couple of decades, finding so many of them that went down. And I think, I mean, I think that's really cool that we can mm-hmm. still see some of these. Uh, and some of them, I mean, you know, we knew where the war sunk, uh, but mm-hmm. the, there are other ones we have had no idea where they sunk. They were just gone at some point. And I, I try to think of finding those in the middle of the ocean. I mean, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Up space down there. <laughs> That's making like, you wonder. I mean, how much how much oil and gas and ordnance and all yeah. sorts of stuff and, under. And like what it, what it was like to see that little para, that little periscope. Right oh yeah, there. Little, I yeah. Mean, it can't be. It can't have been <laughs> big at all. Yeah, and, and, they, and they see the wake. Yeah, and to have taken the shot. Yeah, yeah I'm sure he was thinking. Yeah, I'll just follow the ship in. It'll be easy. And <laughs> yeah, no, no one will no one will have any idea. Well, they, and kudos they to them too because first what well, first it was contacted by a Coast Guard minesweeper, and then yeah. but it was the stores ship that was going in that noticed them hanging out behind him yeah yeah uh, and it also shows the challenge i mean those those mini submarines those midget submarines that they launch off a larger submarine there are four of them apparently and yeah one of them might have gotten in pearl harbor they don't know that for sure but there's some you know some indication yeah, they, that they might have they weren't as successful uh, and, as maybe they wanted them to be but i mean they certainly had uh, well, a potential. no i mean they were i mean but i mean you know that's you don't imagine you're going to get home right no. <laughs> i mean right so that's that's the that was uh, it, they had they faced an enormous challenge trying to get inside through the the, the submarine nets yep. and, the, and the and the pickets and all that sort of stuff uh, for and a chance they had like two torpedoes so two two chances to hurt something and and almost certainly you're never going to get home. Do you think he volunteered to be on a two man sub? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I I will say the Japanese did seem to have some. Uh, uh, well, and I mean, I guess that's true of, of any army. You had people who were willing to do jobs uh, that cause of a cause. Yeah, 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 right. Uh, they, they are jobs that I would that I would 
hesitate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't asking him to ram into the ship, so I no. don't know. But I mean, that's uh, yeah. I, I mean, you have to say that that was, and this shows how difficult that challenge was. Yeah. You know, these and these, you know, these two men died serving their country. Yeah. Uh, because they were trying to do something that was very difficult to do. Yeah. Whether we, uh, whether we appreciate what they were trying to do or not, that was, you know, they, yeah. they from their perspective. Uh, and you know, I think that some of the some of the things we forget about, you know, when we talk about signs and stuff like that. I mean, there was there was a very tense situation going on in forty one. Um, we we were certainly concerned about the conflict, and I I think we forget, you know, we we think oh the surprise attack. We forget that there was all this build up uh, where yeah. where we. <laughs> I I mean, it, it, the evidence is quite clear that we knew that war with Japan oh, was yeah. inevitable. Um, despite the diplomatic efforts, we knew it was inevitable. Yeah. The diplomatic relations had broken down, really. I mean, they sent them, they sent them the warning order in November. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't think... I mean, when the Japanese attacked, everybody knew who was an attack. Yeah. I think everybody there knew that they... But, I mean, they were just surprised by the timing and the location. And honestly, when you, when you try to look over what the thinking really was at Pearl Harbor, the real thinking was that the battle fleet was so powerful... Uh, that's the reason it was moved from Long Beach to uh, to, to Pearl Harbor. The battlefleet was so powerful that the Japanese would never dare yeah. attack. Uh, you know, aside from other errors, they were supposed to do reconnaissance, but I mean, the Army Air Force was arguing with the Navy or who was supposed to do that, and no one was no one was apparently doing it. And, uh, and uh, you know, and it really is coincidence. I mean, there's this argument because the aircraft carriers weren't there; it was a sign that you know we knew it was coming or whatever. And it's really coincidence where the aircraft carriers were. I, I think if you understand where the aircraft carriers were, it wasn't there wasn't any plan about. I'm that also or like that, but. just not sure that we, uh, I, you know, by the end of the war, we figured out that aircraft carriers were probably the most important ships in the fleet. Uh, that that wasn't as clear in 1941, and I'm just not. Sure yeah, that we would have had it's true the that, you know, that we would necessarily save the aircraft carriers because yeah. I mean they ended up being so important to us because they were only capital ships yeah. after the damage to the battleships at Pearl Harbor. Uh, and but I mean you know we knew because I mean the Essex class carriers had already been ordered. I mean yeah. you know that great expansion of the navy actually was already in in play before Pearl Harbor. Probably the so only reason why that, why we were able to respond as quickly as we did is because we were as already, we were yeah because we'd already designed the ships we were already so so it's it, it's not like we didn't know war was coming yeah. but we we certainly didn't know it was coming there that day no uh, and whether we should have known whether we were we missed too many hints or i i don't know but uh uh and, and yeah i don't know that's kind of off topic for the word i mean i'm sure there's people that are still yeah. arguing that you know that we knew that was coming or whatever i i, I think the evidence is that we don't uh, kimmel uh certainly you know who said you know we, we, i've been better off with that because a, a bullet came through his window a 50 caliber bullet and stuck in his in his uniform and he says i've been better off if it, if it killed me I mean, so he knew at that point oh. that, you know, that he had, he had messed up. I mean, I don't think Kimmel ever denied, you know, that, that sort of culpability. But, I mean, it, uh, it's, it's a much broader, you know, culpability across, you yeah. know, government and across across the military that would say that we would, you know, miss that something this size could be happening. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, it's something I think that we think of it's obvious in hindsight, like uh, Betty Joe said. And at the at the time, you know, that's we, they didn't have that. They they believed yeah. all kinds of things, and whether they believed them fairly or well, not. Well, they believed the attack was probably going to come to the south. Well, and the Philippines. major problem, that, uh, basically, when we look back is today with the communications we have. But when you think about what, what it took for them to get the word about what they had done all the way through and all the way through, and part of it was just the fact that you didn't have instant, you didn't have instant knowledge. Yeah. It makes a total I, uh, difference. I don't know how much better we would be today. I imagine they still get so many messages coming True. through. Well, and you, you, you have, have to, I mean, I don't know how much, I, I, you know, I'm not in the military. We've certainly, I hope we'd be better at it. We've certainly, I think that, you know, from things like this, we've, we've made a lot of efforts to try to make sure that we can identify. I would hope so. But right. I mean, if a U.S. naval vessel caught an enemy submarine outside of 
Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I would hope How we quickly would, have... would we get the hint? I don't. I mean, would we be faster than this, or would it take hours? I, I mean, it's it's fair. And the thing is that that, that was very last minute. I mean, that that submarine yeah, yeah, yeah. was this was, was this was yeah, literally hours before the attack. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't. I, I mean, some of that is you know that was failures before that we didn't know the ta- the attack was coming, and by the time we were seeing stuff on our radar, uh, you know that's. We're, we're we're already at yeah, a pretty significant I, disadvantage. Was, they were in denial, and I, you know the war kind of shows that too. Even the ward after the attacks that it did, when they first started hearing the bombs going off, they said they thought that was highway work. They didn't. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't even, connect. Even the ward who had seen and thought they'd shot uh, sunk an enemy submarine, still yeah. didn't understand the attack was occurring when the attack occurred. Well, if you guys don't know, in addition to our YouTube channel and the podcast, we have a website thehistoryguide.com and that's got a collection of everything that we do it's got our podcasts Mm -hmm. it's got all our most recent videos it's got some really Mm -hmm. neat ways for you to explore our really very large collection of videos which can be a little daunting it's it's easier sorted than uh, than finding them on youtube Uh, and so it's it's if you really want to see by topic or by region uh, then you can you can find that on the on the web page and it's so easy thehistoryguide.com you can also buy our merchandise there uh, if you really love the history guy, you can donate to us directly there uh, with with PayPal. Uh, but uh, if you want to find also a place where all the podcasts are collected in the same place that all of the videos are collected, uh, it's a one stop shop and it's a beautiful web page. It's called uh, you know, thehistoryguy.com. Yeah, great place to buy Christmas gifts. There you go. That's for that the history lover who wants a T-shirt. Say Merry Christmas with a History Guy shirt or a mug. Merry Christmas for or the, yeah. the new stickers or magnets. The new magnets. Sticker magnets. Yeah, magnets. Yeah. They're new. Yeah, you can get them there. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of what happened afterward on December 8th. December 7th, 1941 might be the date that lives in infamy, but those words were actually used by President Franklin Roosevelt 80 years ago today on December 8th, before a joint session of Congress that was broadcast live to the nation at around 1230 in the afternoon. Despite all the theories about forewarning of the attack and the extent to which the United States had already involved itself in the world conflict, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor shocked the nation, left behind confusion, fear, and a a deep sense of purpose. But nowhere was the weight of history more obvious after the attack on December 7th than in the territory of Hawaii where the attack occurred. Residents of that territory woke up the next day to look at the newspaper and see a, a world forever changed. The immediate impact of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on the territory of Hawaii deserves to be remembered. The December 8th, 1941 edition of the Honolulu Advertiser represents the shock and confusion of the Japanese attack. Front page stories report the experience of the paper's reporters the day before. The streets were lined from one end of the city to the other with men and women and children, some still in their pajamas and nightshirts, all were looking westward, most of them with a somewhat perplexed expression on their faces. Another headline reads, Civilian Toll, 37 Dead, Many Hurt. But the paper also includes incongruities. Page 3 has a sizable article called Merit Parade, listing area youth. Someday jovial and fun Florence will have a doctor's degree. One of the most outstanding girls in the Momoa Valley School is Doris, a senior and honor student. Alberto Alfonso wants to be a musician. Charles Potts, a journalist. Another article talks about the December birthstone. Column reviews plays on Broadway, and an ad shows a Yank in the RAF, starring Tyrone Power and Betty Grable is playing at the Waikiki Theater. A comic has Lil Abner excited about pork chops for dinner. These mundane stories that would be recognized in any local paper of the time are almost surreal, next to lists of civilian casualties. Portuguese girl, unidentified, age 10, address unknown, puncture wound, left temple, 
and stories about reporters on their way to the naval base seeing red sparks bouncing up from the pavement in front of us as a plane we don't know whose flew close overhead from the rear and we could hear the now familiar rat-tat-tat-tat. It's hard to wrap your mind around people being told to boil their water because tests haven't yet determined whether it is contaminated, and that the Navy, to shoot all ships not identified, also needed a story about how dress sleeves were long and notably full that season. Even in Honolulu, on December 8, 1941, immediately after the attack, people did not seem to realize how much the world had changed, or how little the length of dress sleeves would matter in the coming years. But there is much in that December 8th edition to foreshadow the dramatic changes that would be affecting the U.S. territory following the attack. The headline reads, Saboteurs Land Here, warning that a party of saboteurs had been landed on northern Oahu was given early Sunday morning by the army. The saboteurs were distinguished by red discs on their shoulders. Renewed Japanese bombing attacks on Oahu reported the morning of the 8th. A report from the United Press says that a naval engagement was in progress off Honolulu going so far as to say that NBC Radio heard from a Panama report that a Japanese aircraft carrier was sunk. These stories show how confused information was. The website History on the Net notes, neither the naval battle off Honolulu nor the repeated radio reports about the Japanese paratroopers on the ground in Honolulu were true. But there was no immediate clarification, and in the days following, speculation fed a bonfire of anxiety that would rage beyond control. The severity of the immediate damage is obvious in the paper. A box on page one proclaims, Blood donors urgently needed, request that was repeated on December 10th. While most histories of the attack on Pearl Harbor focus on the strategic effects, the ships that were sunk and damaged, immediate impacts like shutting down radio stations for fear that the Japanese could navigate by them and the delay of local newspapers means that the, the, the true story of what the people in Hawaii were experiencing was relatively muted. Military reports from the day are surprisingly incomplete and the nation was distracted by the United States entry into the war. But the immediate situation was terrible. Professor Johnny Bowen of the University of Hawaii, Manoa, wrote a history of the response by the Honolulu Fire Department. It was about a 12-minute response for Engine 6 to Hickam Field, so Fireman Richard Young, Harry Tuck, Lee Pang, and Bill Tam riding the wagon's rear step had plenty of time to contemplate what they were getting into. Young said, as we responded over winding Moanalua Road and Puloa Road, we saw towering columns of black smoke with flames leaking hundreds of feet into the sky. Firehouse, a website for fire rescue professionals, described the experience of the men of Honolulu Fire Department's Engine Number 6. Reaching the main gate, the men of Engine 6 were relieved that the bombing, strafing an anti-aircraft return fire had stopped, but were awed by what they saw. An underground gas main had been hit and was spewing flames dozens of feet into the air right near the front gate. As they passed the column of flame, the bigger picture began to come into focus. Dead, dying, and wounded military personnel lay everywhere. A large barrack struck by a bomb was burning fiercely. Across the road, several hangars and a quarter-mile-long line of parked planes was also blazing. Hickamfield's own firefighting equipment had been hit in the initial attack. Bowen writes, One engine had been driven about 20 feet out onto the ramp, apparently trying to respond, before it was strafed by the low-flying Japanese planes. The driver was slumped over the steering wheel, dead. The other engine never got out of the station. Firehouse goes on. Now joined by engine number four, they found that they were the only firefighting force available to handle the multiple fires, rescue efforts, and body recoveries surrounding them. The airfield's water main had been severed and the hydrants were out of service. Fire crews pumped water from a bomb crater. As Honolulu engines started to arrive, the second wave of Japanese attackers came. For the next 15 minutes, all hell rained down on the Honolulu firemen and the remaining military scattered across the airfield. Bombs whistled in, shaking the ground as they detonated, one after another. Streams of machine gun bullets screaming through the sky, stitching death across the smoke-filled fire ground. 
shrapnel ripped through the air, tearing off those huddled on the ground trying to make themselves invisible to the pilots and machine gunners above. Equipment was damaged in the attacks. Bowen writes, their apparatus, all manufactured by the Seagrave Corporation, and much of it ten years old and chain-driven, have been repeatedly strafed and hit by bomb fragments. The chemical tank of Engine 1's wagon was pierced by shrapnel, and Engine 6's pumper had too many bullet holes to count. Wagon 6 was a fire. The pumpers of Engines 1 and 4 had been severely damaged by a hail of shrapnel. All six tires were punctured on Engine 1's pumper. Radiators of several units were spewing miniature geysers of water through their bullet holes. But that didn't keep them from their job. He continues, They got their damaged apparatus functioning by using brown soap and toilet paper to plug the holes in the radiators. No one remembers exactly where these supplies came from. Seemingly, they just materialized, most logically from the toilets and the burning barracks. But the fires weren't limited to military facilities. Bowen writes, The bombs had barely stopped falling when the HFD Alarm Bureau became deluged with calls from assistance ranging from reports of live electrical wires to bomb strikes to serious building fires. Lopez said that there were so many alarm boxes being pulled that one round was coming in on top of another. Alexander Back, a hoseman at engine number four, was operating a reserve pumper that was dispatched to the Honolulu Gas Company in Ivale for a gas storage tank fire. Bowen quoted Back, One of their two huge tanks was burning. I really wondered how we were ever going to get that fire out. A bomb or maybe an unexploded anti-aircraft shell had blasted a hole in the top of the tank. Gas was shooting up through this hole and was burning spectacularly. Three members of the Honolulu Fire Department, Captain John Carrera, Captain Thomas Macy, and hoseman Harry T.L. Pang, were killed in the attacks. Three others were injured and awarded Purple Hearts, an award that is usually reserved for members of the military. Bowen notes, the HFD had earned the distinction of being the only civilian fire department in the United States to fight fires caused by enemy action under combat conditions. As fires raged, the community faced the problem of dealing with the wounded. The website of PearlHarbor.org writes, Dead bodies were everywhere, in the water, the streets, and the islands. Many would never be recovered, and today they remain in the waters or immersed in the soil. There's no doubt the devastation of that event caused a lot of heartache, both physically and psychologically. The U.S. military suffered more than 1,100 wounded in the attack. Hospital facilities were relatively robust in Hawaii. Pearl Harbor Hospital became overcrowded in 1940, and so the Naval History and Heritage Command reports every effort had been made to add to the bed capacity, equipment, supplies, and personnel of the Hawaiian area. But, of course, nothing could have prepared them for the scope of the attack. Some facilities were damaged. The hospital tents that housed the sick bay and dispensary were set on fire by incendiary ammunition at the Marine Corps station at Eva. Casualties at the Naval Air Station on the island of Kaneohe overwhelmed the small dispensary there. The evacuation to Honolulu not immediately possible. Several casualties were sent to the Kaneohe Territorial Hospital for the insane. While the efforts of the Navy Medical Department were commended after the attack, still facilities were overwhelmed. The Naval History and Heritage Command writes, Ashore, immediately after the attack, first aid stations were set up quickly in the receiving barracks, recreation center, yard dispensary, officers club, submarine base dispensary, naval air station dispensary, and marine barracks. The section base dispensary at Bishop's Point helped the Army to care for men from Hickam Field. Still, they continue, because of lack of time and insufficient medical personnel, surgical operations could not always be performed upon men within six hours after they were wounded. Bowen coded the experience of Lieutenant Kialoha of the Honolulu Fire Department, injured in the attack. I was thrown into an army truck and taken to the hospital at Fort Shafter. I was kept outside on the grass all night. My wet clothes dried right on me. 
The large U.S. Naval Hospital at Pearl Harbor required help from the community. The Naval History and Heritage Command continues. A doctor of the Medical Corps who was convalescing after a major operation voluntarily returned to duty and worked until he became exhausted at the end of the third day. A large number of civilian women who had nursing or first aid training volunteered to assist the 29 Navy nurses. A total of 114 registered nurses were supplied through the local Red Cross, with as many as 26 of these on duty at one time. About 8 or 10 nurses who were wives of enlisted men were of valuable assistance. The injuries were not limited to the military facilities, Bowen notes, and so it went throughout the morning. Reports of explosions and injured persons were coming into the HFD Alarm Bureau from all over Honolulu. One occurred on the grounds of Lolani Palace. Another killed a man at Washington Place. Four civilian employees at Pearl Harbor died when their car was hit on Judd Street. They've been trying to get to work. A woman died from shrapnel wounds in Upper Nuanu Valley, eight miles from the military target. Several amateur boxers were wounded or killed while eating at a salmon stand at Nuanu and Kukui Streets. The toll of civilian casualties rose rapidly, most of the people being victims of bizarre accidents as they sought to protect their families and property. Some of the survivors had very frightening stories to relate about their harrowing experiences. One person tells about shrapnel shearing off a telephone pole six inches above his head. Another of walls falling where she had stood seconds before. A third speaks of shrapnel breaking a window in front of her just as she stumbled over a curb and fell headlong to the ground. The very last page of the advertiser's December 8th edition makes a brief mention. A state of emergency now exists in Hawaii under provisions of the M-Day bill following a proclamation by the governor. That proclamation would come to be much in the following days and years. This referred to a provision of the 1900 Hawaiian Organic Act, which established the territory of Hawaii. One provision read that the governor shall be responsible for the faithful execution of the laws of the United States and the territory of Hawaii within the said territory, and whenever it becomes necessary, he may call upon the commanders of the military and naval forces of the United States in the territory of Hawaii, or summon the posse comitatus, or call out the militia of the territory to prevent or suppress lawless violence, invasion, insurrection, or rebellion in said territory. And he may, in case of rebellion or invasion, or imminent danger thereof, when the public safety requires it, suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, or place the territory or any part thereof under martial law until communication can be had with the president and his decision thereon made known. The one sentence on the back page of the December 8th edition of the Honolulu Advertiser seems to miss the significance of the governor's proclamation. Hawaii was now under martial law and would be for the next three years. The website of the History Channel explains in the wake of Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaiian civilians struggled to understand what had just happened and to make sense of the announcement that their island was now under martial law. The military enforced a strict curfew, took control of labor, including wages, working conditions, and allocation of laborers. They censored the press, radio transmissions, long-distance phone calls, and outgoing mail. Hospitals, food and liquor stores, and even prostitution were under the direct control of the military. All civilians except small children were registered, fingerprinted, and required to carry identification at all times. Rights of habeas corpus and trial by jury were suspended. Because nearly one-third of the population was of Japanese heritage, Hawaii could not afford internment as done on the mainland, but the activities of Japanese Americans were specifically curtailed, and people could be arrested without warrant or trial. Some 2,000 were arrested in the first 48 hours after the attack, and 10,000 eventually arrested, with some 2,000 interred or transferred to detention on the mainland. Some civil authority was returned in March of 1943, but martial law in Hawaii did not end until October 1944.
In the end, none of these detainees was found guilty of any overt acts against U.S. law. None were accused of sabotage. Only a few were accused of espionage, and only one. A German citizen living in Hawaii was found guilty of spying on behalf of the Japanese. He was sentenced to 50 years hard labor and deported to Germany after the war. The 1946 United States Supreme Court case Duncan v. Kahanamaku avoided the issue of military rule, but did rule that supplanting of trial by jury with military courts was unconstitutional. December 7, 1941 changed the nation and the world, but no place was more changed by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor than the territory of Hawaii. Waking up on December 8th, still under the threat of Japanese attack, told that saboteurs were in their midst and facing the uncertain future under military rule, the islands were forever changed. The thousands and thousands of military personnel that came through the islands during the war transformed the Hawaiian culture and landscape and helped to give rise to the tourist culture that would then propel the territory towards statehood in 1949. You know, I think that this uh, December 8th is such a good idea for an episode, honestly. Uh, the, mm-hmm. This concept that, you know, we, we remember December 7th. Uh, it's the date that lives in infamy. But December 8th is a day that I think we, we forget about. Uh, because, it, I mean, it took us a while. You know, it was, it was months still before we really started having uh, an ability to respond to what happened. And we mm-hmm. were still dealing with stuff. But that I, I try to think of what it was like to wake up on December 8th. I mean, even, you know, in the mainland United States, but in Hawaii, you're waking Hawaii, up on December yeah. 8th. And I, when the smoke was still still pouring out of the ships, yeah. You had no idea I mean, this, what was This going episode on. really started, I mean, you know, Josh writes a lot of the episodes. I happen to write this episode. Yeah. But I mean, this episode really started with, there were a bunch of things about Pearl Harbor I wanted to talk about. I was trying to figure out how to kind of group them together. Uh, and it happened to be that you're, the release day was on the 8th and not on the 7th. But, uh, the, uh, I mean, and there's a lot in there. There's a lot. We're talking about the, you know, the, the, the Honolulu Fire Department. Yeah. We're talking, you know, but uh, uh, no, I mean, things changed in the U.S. right away. Immediately things changed. People yeah. were running off to enlist and, and you know, uh, eventually the Japanese internment, of course. And, uh, and you know, we ch- shift to a war economy. Things changed immediately uh, after the attack on December 7th. But in Hawaii, I mean, that was like the next day. I mean, you had a different form of government, yeah. Uh, and and it was uh, it wasn't just that your island had been attacked and like school children killed. I mean, there were there were civilian casualties and lots of damage, infrastructure damage, and et cetera. And and you know, rumors that there were saboteurs and that they might invade at any moment because we didn't know if there was an invasion oh. fleet that was going to follow up on the attack. Uh, and it's it's not just all of that, and you know the loss of security that you would have after the attack, but it was also uh, you know that 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 uh, uh, everybody just kind of changed all the rules on you kind of instantly, uh, and that was I thought that was worthy of discussion. And one of the things that really struck me was looking at those newspapers on the eighth. Yeah. You know, on the you know on the front you've got the attack, and then in the back you've got lists of casualties. Uh, and in the middle, you have you know the length of dress sleeves this season. Yeah, you know, and they so, still they still have advertisements for the movie. I mean, obviously those they weren't showing movies on the eighth, you know, in the regular theaters. But I mean, the, their ads are still there, and, and well, that, some that of that stuff you have to think was was just already ready for the printer. Oh yeah, uh, and what, yeah, what and do you, you and you got to get you got to get the newspaper out, and so who knows, you know, who knows? Yeah. But it, but it's weird because it's not all just a war newspaper. It's mostly a newspaper that was clearly laid out, you know, yeah. on the seventh. With the, uh, with the idea had, that, that it was yeah, going to be... Yeah, with the extra, extra, by the way, they bombed the snot out of us yesterday on, yeah. on, on this very island. It's hard to understand how much World War II changed yeah. things.
pretty much, I mean, it's it's not just that the U.S. knew that war with the you know U.S. officials knew that war with Japan was coming, but I mean the whole the whole nation knew that we were moving towards war. I mean the, the reason you know from the from the first one from the war, the reason that the Minnesota National Naval National Guard was called up was because we knew that war was coming, and we were taking all the ships out of mothballs and all that sort of stuff. And the nation knew war was coming, and yet it was still such a shock. Uh, to move from you know peace to war overnight, and I don't you know I don't know uh, you know wars are fought differently these days, and we don't necessarily I mean in some ways we've been at war for you know two decades now with the global war on terror and et cetera, but I mean I don't know that that uh, uh, most people alive today in the U.S. have any concept of that idea of that we are suddenly and truly at war, except maybe you know the feeling that we had after after nine eleven. Yeah. Uh, and and so this, I mean, this was this, you know, obviously in, in Sarah as startling as nine eleven. Everybody knew where they were when they heard that, that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. And so I, that that's what this episode was meant. But also to talk about you know there are other heroes that you know that we didn't, that we didn't talk about. One of those being the, the 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 men of the Honolulu Fire Department who put themselves at great risk. Uh, to go put out fires on a military base. Yeah. I mean, you know, to an extent, it wasn't their job, but I mean, they were the only ones that could do it. And and they were, you know, those are those are brave men. Some who yeah. some who lost their lives, who gave all as as firefighters. You see, you don't necessarily think about that, but I mean, there are a lot of those emergency pe- personnel yeah. are you know put in you know great risk at war. A lot of them died fighting fires throughout the war. You know, when the town's been the city's been bombed, the firefighters roll out. And, you know, they're not soldiers. Uh, but they're still they're still there fighting the fires that which risk their lives, and then a lot of times the bombs start coming again, and you know that happened that happened in Europe, and that happened in Asia, and that happened in at, at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these were people who were going in; they weren't armed. Uh, you know, they had they had not well, signed yeah, I mean, up whether, for the military. They were, it's it's, it's not brave. Like if you had a pistol, you're going to take a plane down. Well, true. Yeah, I mean, also. this idea that they're using they're using toilet paper and soap to plug the holes in the radiator so they can keep the I, pumper truck going. Admittedly, you could you would probably not blame them if you fly you fly in because you're the only uh, fire engine. Your fire engine immediately gets shot to hell. Uh, I think yeah. my my yeah, if my response say, well, was I'll wait I'm, till the. I'll wait till the attack is over, Before and then maybe we... we'll come find. No, but they they yeah. just they just did their their jobs. Yeah, and so I mean this is so this episode it's another one that has just a lot of different things in it. Uh, uh, but uh, but the whole the whole idea of it is to say, you know, we remember December seventh, but do we really really understand what December seventh meant until yeah. we look at December eighth and see you know how much how much life has changed, how much the world has changed? We've done a lot of episodes on the home front and risks that people took on the home front, yeah. and and I mean you know the very first episode of the History Guy was talking about the home front, right? It was talking about a naval supply depot in Utah, uh, and, uh, and we talk a lot about that, but I mean that 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 wasn't something that we slowly kind of moved into. I mean, that was for most of the nation. I mean, a lot of preparation came before, but for most of the nation, that was overnight, one day. On December seventh, you know, on, on December sixth or, or before the attack, uh, you know, it is just a normal day. And the next day, you know, the whole nation has a whole different idea of what's important. And, and the fact that it, twenty minutes, basically, uh, about twenty in twenty minutes, that can happen, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just is actually shocking. When I asked, and I asked, I asked Lance, you know, how long was it? How how much did it take? That uh, yeah. just those two flurries. And so just think that you're in downtown. Uh, they're on the island and so forth and that happens and then yeah. it goes away and you see the smoke and yeah you read the newspaper and you know that Aunt Molly went to have tea with so and so it just it's just absolutely how do you adjust that fast to the to the to total devastation of your place it's crazy and you know they were uh, they were on the very much on the front line and you know mm-hmm. again now we can look back and say ah oh, there really never was a risk of 
of them invading Hawaii. But I tell you, if if on December 6th you didn't think they were probably going to attack Pearl Harbor, uh, by December 8th I can see why you're like they might invade at any time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, there were, there were actually it's in some of the some of the reports at the, on the day saying that yeah. they had landed saboteurs and that they were. I mean, so uh, yeah, you had every reason to believe. And of course, the the Navy had every reason to think they you know they've devastated our fleet. They're planning to invade and take the Hawaiian Islands. Which were so I think crazy. That risk, I think that risk was very well understood. Yeah. I and mean, people really did. You know, uh, you had every reason to feel insecure. And who knew? You know, we didn't know where the fleet was. You know, we've largely been blinded because they knocked out most of our reconnaissance aircraft you don't you don't know if the uh, if the if the rest of the fleet is still is still around i mean for all yeah, you know you don't know you too. don't know how big the japanese fleet are, are is or where they are or yeah. what their intention is yeah, yeah. no idea what so, happened I mean, yeah that that changed i mean that also that just has changed in security nobody in hawaii could have been feeling safe no. and of course there were lots of not just rumors of saboteurs but also rumors that there were that there were conspirators there and stuff like that yeah. very fascinating the only person that was actually found to be a conspirator was it was a german american <laughs> Yeah, right. Was, That's that was a, yeah. So I mean, I, you know, at the time, and then you know, they couldn't do internment in Japan like they did in uh, the United States because it was just too large. The Japanese descendants were too big a part of the population. Uh, but I mean, the, you know, the immediate distrust, mistrust of people of your own nation, which turned out to be, you know, entirely unfounded. I mean, yeah. you know, there simply simply wasn't any evidence that anybody there was was working with it's, with the Japanese or anything. Uh, it's always a tragedy. Uh, when when we talk about the the Japanese mm-hmm. internment, and I mean, what, one of the reasons is because um, none of them seem to have who, to have done anything, or yeah. you know, extremely small numbers. Mm-hmm. It's just that they they were ultimately they were Americans, and uh, it's not just that we interned them, but you know, they lost their businesses and their homes and, and uh, property. And, yeah, yeah, this is, and and it's it's, it's hard because I, I do it's it's hard it's to hard, say yeah. that you don't understand why that's that's your gut reaction. Um, that I mean, I, I understand that. It's also just not, you know, it's not fair. And it wasn't yeah, fair to those it's, people. It's horrible to imagine that, you know, I mean, I, I probably made sense at the time why yeah. people mistrusted and stuff like that. But you, you wish we could, I mean, that's not supposed to be how we are. We're supposed yeah. to be the sort of nation where we accept, you know, everybody of all backgrounds. Yeah. And, uh, and especially, you know, the number that served very, very bravely in the, in the U.S. Armed Forces and things like that. And, yeah. I mean, and, in, you know, a, a, in addition to that change of law, I mean, I mean, they suspended trial by jury. They suspended yeah. habeas corpus. You could be arrested on mere suspicion. You could be tried by a military tribunal without representation. Uh, and, and you know, that obviously could happen because, you you know, you looked like yeah. the people who attacked us. Uh, and They're so definitely this, under greater I mean, suspicion, and that's that's a different shift in your feeling of safety yeah. uh, too. It's not yeah. just it's not just that you know this island could be attacked and you don't know the intentions of the people that are attacking it, but now you know your own government mistrusts you. Yeah. Uh, you don't know that you can trust them or or how to you know like explain that you that they can trust yeah. you, and uh, it's it's hard. And they can just you know, they can just bust in the door, take your brother, yeah. walk away, and you know they don't even have to explain what the charge is. They don't have yeah. to charge. Well, and that's you know there was that was controversial at the time too. But I mean that's mm-hmm. happened. That's it happened during the Civil War. You know Abraham Lincoln also yeah, uh, suspended, suspended habeas corpus, corpus. Yeah. and it's it's yeah. it's hard. It's hard to imagine doing it. It's hard to imagine feeling okay that it was done. And it's it's different. And I, I also think you know the people of Hawaii at the time were it was a territory, and that's I. I I don't mm-hmm. I, I don't know that we think about that a lot. Uh, they know that it wasn't a state and that they were. Uh, well, and uh, I think uh, weren't there uh, there was bombing in the Philippines and some other yes. places too. Oh, yeah. And uh, the but the but the primary uh, interest or you know really what we know was Pearl Harbor. And I hadn't. That's right. Whenever you talk about all the other attacks that occurred, that there day. were a number Wake of other and, attacks. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, FDR did when he when he gave the speech. FDR mentioned all yeah. these other places were attacked too, in order to show the wave of it. But uh, it was, yeah, it was just as horrible. And you know, the Philippines was also a territory, yeah, and so that's I mean, true. Uh, and those were those were Americans as much as the people at Pearl yeah. Harbor were. Uh, and uh, well, the also, Philippines. You know, I mean, largely. I, I mean, there was there was Guam. resistance in the Philippines for for some time, uh, but yeah. much of the country. Well, more people who served bravely. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the the um, you know the people in the Philippine military that were serving. One way, I mean, yeah, more people who bravely fought to the death, yeah. you know, for the same cause, and we don't remember it nearly as much at all. Yeah, the the uh, we knew we knew that the uh, uh, Philippines was not in a position to defend itself. Uh, we knew yeah. that it was it was vulnerable, and I, to be honest, when you look at the preparations before the war it looked like we understood that that we just simply didn't have enough time uh to make yeah. the philippines defensible and well it was just this line because for a long time we're trying not to provoke yeah uh, and that means that we don't build any fortifications in the pacific and at the point that you know japan leaves the naval treaty and we you know we understand we don't have a chance there's not enough time that's where the uh, two of the carriers were by the way the t- at pearl harbors that they were busy sending airplanes one was one was sending airplanes to wake and one was sending airplanes to midway uh, and uh, so it turns out the carriers weren't sunk because they were preparing for the war that we knew that was coming. So it wasn't like we were shocked that yeah. war came. We just, you know, we just didn't know it was coming then and there. And with that much ferocity, we thought we would have a warning and it would go be, you know, an honorable war where two ships or two fleets would come out and shoot at each other. You know? Yeah, we we didn't uh, expect the the. Well, and I mean that's that's I think that's why the Japanese did it. It was a gutsy move, and their their goal uh, was to have you know this this massive attack that would mm-hmm. uh, either uh, disable us long enough that you know they would be able to secure what they needed to secure or even honestly you know force us into a position where we just simply couldn't uh, well they knew when we went to war we'd probably prioritize europe and yeah. so there's a lot of and you know honestly the attack worked yeah all right i mean they were able to take the philippines they were able to take our pacific island territories uh they were able to move you know all the way through southeast asia where they wanted they were able to threaten british india which is yep. where they wanted to go uh, and it took a very long time for the U.S. to recover to the point that we could, you know, that we could materially do much about it. You know, we did. I mean, it's you know great to see the things we did with our remaining aircraft carriers. You know, even though you know eventually we we were to lose those. You yeah. Know, it, what it did not do is to moralize the nation so that we didn't want to fight. It energized the nation so that we did. Well, and you look at uh, what Yamato, who did the, uh, who made the plan, seemed to be aware that it, you know if if you didn't essentially knock us out immediately, mm-hmm. that that. Japan didn't have the industrial that's, capacity. Uh, Yamamoto, to, right? The, Yamamoto, the, the, yeah, the, right. The right, ship right, was right. Yamato. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's you know that's the legend. He says we've I fear we've awakened a sleeping dragon, uh, and and the plan apparently was to attack after declaring war, and then you know this, the embassy was not able to manage to get the, I, the copies there. It ultimately sound. I mean, ultimately, I feel like it was kind of a cop out, no matter what. I mean, it was supposed to be yeah. essentially a surprise attack, but yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you deliver the the letter thirty minutes before you attack, it's still going to be. Yeah, but I mean. They're... There was a propaganda thing in it, but I mean, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, all those, uh, you know, about, uh, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, if let's say that we had not, uh, figured out what was going on with the attack on the, with the ward. Uh, let's see that, you know, we had we had read the, the radar properly and we had planes in the air. Uh, you know, let's say the battlefield had managed to get out of the harbor so they could better maneuver and weren't as badly damaged. I mean, we would have still been at war. It still yeah. would have been, a, you know, a dastardly attack uh, or, you know, as, as it was stated by the president. I don't think it took the, the casualties of Pearl Harbor to throw us wholeheartedly into the war. No. Uh, and so there's no reason, you know, there's no reason that, that, you know, we would have wished that. I mean, that, you know, the attack, you, you would have to say from a military standpoint, the attack was shockingly successful. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and I mean, really very little like it in, in world history to have taken what was considered to be, you know, the most powerful naval force in the Pacific and to essentially neutralize it uh, in, yeah. in, you know, in an hour. 
Uh, and so you, you can't say it wasn't successful. Uh, and and uh, you, that's part of what the episode kind of shows is how much we had to change our, our life because of it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the end, you know, uh, it wasn't maybe, in, you know, maybe there was never going to be enough because of the difference in the size of the two nations and the production capacity and all that sort of things. But, you know, I, it, that in the end it failed. As a matter of fact, in the end, it energized the United States into into a war uh, that got in some points, you would say, vindictive because of, yeah. of Pearl Harbor. Uh, but uh, at the time, you say that, I mean, you had to come away from that. I mean, Yamamoto had to come away from that saying this, this succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. My how, goodness. how could it have done better? I, I mean, hardly, we literally were hardly able to mount any kind of defense. Yeah, it was caused by surprise and, and, you know, essentially, you know, disabled at least in a, in a four months, at least yeah. every single capital ship uh, in the U.S. Pacific fleet, except for the, the three that didn't happen to be there that day. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it is really hard to imagine in almost any situation, anyone would have been like, wow, this was, this was an incredible uh, success for for, yeah, uh, for yeah, a military operation was, yeah. and it's it's hard uh, it's hard to say that you know when you when you uh you're on the losing side of it but uh, and it's tragedy no matter who's on what side but it was ultimately i mean it was it was a successful attack and it absolutely uh, i i mean without pearl harbor you know even if we entered the war eventually it wouldn't have done to hawaii what it did to hawaii Oh yeah, it, it wouldn't have necessarily changed there the way they did. Yeah. I mean, that's that's Pearl Harbor, which is exactly what this this episode is about. And you know, there was just there was a lot of heroism at Pearl Harbor. I mean, you know, even in defeat. Uh, and so, you know, the you know the the people that were rescuing sailors out of sunken ships, the the people that were shooting back, even though they you know that wasn't their job, and yeah. the, the people who came and fought those fires while being shot at. Uh, you know, those are, you know, those are heroes and the, on the, whatever the boxers that were buying breakfast, you know, they got machine gun, you know, that were, uh, uh, those were casualties of war that shows, you know, that the war isn't, isn't clean. It doesn't just shoot at soldiers. Uh, and so these are all, these are all stories. There's reasons that we should be remembering Pearl Harbor. Uh, and I feel, I think a lot of people, maybe in my generation feel that we just don't remember it like we used to. I mean, they just don't talk about it as much on December 7th as we once did. Uh, but there's reasons that we need to, that we need to remember. And, you know, one of the reasons is because it really impacted real lives and those people's lives deserve to, to be remembered. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.